Golazo. So here's our last morning session together for this particular expedition and retreat. So not a whole lot to say, um, but a little bit to say. And that is, it is very, very easy when we're meditating, especially, for example, in the cultivation of shamatha, to feel discouraged on occasion, or the ever so prevalent tendency to evaluate the practice on the basis of how it went. That sounds tautological, but how relaxed, how stable, how vivid the mind was in any given meditation session. Oh, that session was really good. That session wasn't very good. This session was good. That wasn't very good. That is a, a hedonic evaluation of how the practice is going. What we can bring to it is our best skill, our intelligence, our conscientiousness, our motivation. So we can't say, oh, my motivation happened to me. Motivation, aspiration, ideals, this is what we bring to the practice. But at any given time, at what point, you know, what, how relaxed are we, how still, how still are we, how vivid is the attention, it's not something we can simply decide and then do it, right? It's tied in with physiology, environment, so many, many factors. So I'd really strongly encourage you to release that tendency and to consider that as life dishes up from day to day, year to year, dishes up different situations, different states of health, we'll be getting older, hopefully we'll get a lot older. And that goes with a lot of baggage. You know, who was it? The famous actress said, old age is not for sissies. Well, a lot, of, a lot, lot to be said for that. So what we bring to the practice, that we can have some control, we can take responsibility over this, or with regards to this, we can have empathetic joy. Uh, but not to evaluate, not to give up, not to feel depressed when we give it our best shot. We sit down conscientiously, remembering the practice, doing our best, and then finding it doesn't go very well. Okay? We can't control that. So it's like having an elephant, a pet elephant. You know? And this is, of course, a classic parable from Buddhism. But if you have an elephant in your backyard, or maybe in your living room, you know, uh, I mean a full-grown elephant, um, then if the elephant is well-tamed, you might not want them in a living room, but certainly you could get in traditional India, Thailand, and so forth, that elephant can do an awful lot of work for you. It's a big beast. It can do a lot of really good work. Of course, an elephant that is untamed, let alone an elephant in rut, can really make your whole life miserable. Right? And so that is a pretty strong analogy to our own minds. One common aphorism is our minds can be our best friends, they can be our best enemies, our worst enemies. And so, to my mind, it is very simple. And that is, however frustrating it may be, how many, however gratifying it may be, however quick the practice goes, however slow the practice goes, to my mind it is quite clear that this is something absolutely worth doing, to subdue, as the Buddha said, avoid non-virtue, apply virtue, and completely subdue your mind. That it's just worth doing no matter what, whether we're good at it or whether we're terrible at it. It's just kind of like, a good, I'm a good elephant trainer, I'm a bad elephant trainer, but the elephant is still there. You know? So, to have the tenacity, and really is now is the perfect time for the word sisu. If this is worth doing, now if it's not worth doing, if one thing, now this is just a Buddhist trip, you know, those Buddhists have screwed up minds, we non-Buddhists, we're doing pretty well, then that would be quite, that would be fine. 
But if this is not just, this is simply a Buddhist response, a Buddhist remedy for something that all human beings, at least, are suffering from, then the issue here is existential. It's not religious, it's not philosophical, it's not East, West, ancient or modern. It is really part of our human predicament that the minds can literally torture us to death and, the minds, and our own minds can bring us inexpressible bliss, genuine happiness, fulfillment and well-being. But for them to, the mind to serve us well, of course we have to be able to subdue it, to, to, to direct it as we wish, to make it serviceable. But a mind that is really dominated by OCDD, I think we all now know, is really painful. It's really, really painful. It's not comfortable. It's not pleasing. It's not satisfying. There's just nothing good about it. And as I just try to be aware of what's taking place here in the 21st century, to my mind, the primary response, especially in modernity, but it's becoming, modernity is becoming global, has become global to a large extent, the primary response to the pain, the dukkha, the dissatisfaction, the unease, the restlessness, the anxiety, and so forth, let alone all the trappings of low self-esteem and so forth that come with OCDD, the primary response for most of the population is not alcohol. Alcoholics are a minority. It's not drugs, cocaine, marijuana, and so forth and so on. That's a minority. It's not smoking. That's common, but that's a minority. I think it's a minority. Uh, it's widespread, but you know, but nicotine, kind of like, oh, boy, do I need a smoke? Oh, that was a tough day. I really need a smoke. That was really good sex. I think I need a smoke. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know. So I don't think that's a majority. To my mind, the um, the primary response is work. Work followed by entertainment, followed by being comatose followed by work, entertainment, comatose, work, entertainment, comatose. And that's how life just goes by. And, then, and people, and especially when it comes to the work, because of our Protestant ethic now, which is dominating China, and is dominating so many you know, non-Western societies, people take pride. I mean, not many alcoholics feel pride. I don't think. I haven't really interviewed them that much. But I don't think many alcoholics are proud. Man, I, my, I, went, I knocked off three quarts of scotch yesterday. It was really something. I'll try for four today. You know, it's, it's generally something they know is not really, how do you say, helpful. I don't think people are really proud of how many cigarettes they can smoke or how much cocaine they can snort. But we actually take pride in how we can anesthetize our own minds by means of work. And then take pride at the fabulous types of ways that we can just fritter away time, whether it's Facebook, whether it's video games, whether it's text messaging, one every half hour for the average teenager, for every waking moment, for every waking hour, one, one text message every 30 minutes, boy, do they have a lot to say. So anything to gobble up the time. And so we take pride in this general anesthetic of work, and then we're exhausted, then we take pride in the way we dope ourselves up again with, with entertainment, and then if we can't sleep, then we take medication to be able to sleep, go comatose, and be ready for this really vicious cycle. So this is really modernity. This is the 20th century. This is the 21st century. And by the time I was in my teens, I wanted out. I just wanted out. I just said, you know, by the time I, tw got, to, I got to 20, then I got, I got out. But even in my late teens, I was just thinking, this is such a rat race. This is such a rat race. As Lily Tomlin said, the problem with the rat race, what is it? Ah, the, tr the problem with the rat race is even if you win, you're still a rat. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, 
a passage I was about minute late today because this passage, when I read it, I don't remember exactly what age, but I'm sure it was teenage. But when I read it, I think it had, I, could, I can exaggerate this, it was so long ago, more than 40 years ago. But when I read this, it just captivated me. I think, okay, that's it. What the, the, the existential unrest, dissatisfaction, sense of hopelessness that modernity is ever going to give me this kind of satisfaction I'm looking for, the wisdom, the insight, fulfillment. I read this and I thought, okay, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. So let's see if I can read it without my glasses. Because I, I was copying it down rapidly just before coming here. I went to the woods because I wanted to live life because I wanted to live deliberately. This is really borderline from my eyes. I forgot I should have brought my glasses. And does anybody have reading glasses? That would be great. Thank you. I had reading glasses when I wrote it down. I'm going to start from the beginning. Oh, that does it. Okay. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. You got me at hello, you know, as, the, as the movie line says. I read that and I said, okay, you've just spoken to my heart. A little bit later in this passage, I wanted to, and I've edited a little bit because I didn't have time to write the whole thing out. I wanted to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms, and if it proved to be mean, then why, then why then get to the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world? Or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. I want to read it again. Okay. I went to the woods because I wish to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I wanted to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms, and if it proved to be mean, why then get to the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world? Or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. So, that's, he speaks my heart. Henry David Thoreau, Walden. That was life-changing for me. Okay, let's practice.
만나서 I'll remind you of a quote which I can't quote, I can only paraphrase uh, that I cited earlier from the brilliant French mathematician um, Blaise Pascal who said the problem, I paraphrase, the problem with modern man is our inability to sit quietly in our chambers. And that was, anybody remember exactly when he lived? Was it 18th century? Nobody remembers. 18th century? Good, thank you. So 18th century France, 21st century globe. If it was difficult back then, then all the more so now. I think over the last eight weeks, that's what it's been now, I think we've all demonstrated that we do have an ability to sit quietly in our chambers. I didn't hear any loud music, rock and roll bands, drunken orgies. Pretty good. <laughs> Thumbs up on that. I like that, you know. So I think we've all demonstrated we really can for hours, hours, on hour after hour, day after day, week after week, we have demonstrated our ability. Very rarely exhibited in the modern world to sit quietly in our chambers. But of course that begs the question, what is our chamber? Is it your room? Then we've demonstrated we can do so. Is the chamber your mind? <laughs> then it's more difficult, more difficult to sit quietly in the chamber of the substrate, of the space of the mind, and to sit quietly, and so quietly, so non-obsessively and so non-compulsively that we actually have the delic delicious experience of observing the activities, the restlessness, the movements of the mind dissolve so we can sit quietly, silently, in stillness in our own substrate consciousness. We come back home to our ground within samsara but even there, there's a subtle degree of restlessness, even after achieving shamatha, a subtle degree of restlessness. The tentacles of clinging, of grasping, coming out, grasping onto the bliss, the luminosity, the non-conceptuality. So still not quite still in the chamber of the substrate, in substrate consciousness. But to release even that very subtle restlessness, the extending tentacles of grasping, to release even that, and allow your substrate consciousness to be dissolved, to be broken through and slip into your ultimate ground, pristine awareness. Then you are really sitting quietly in your chamber. But your chamber is beyond space, beyond time. Very large chamber. The ability to sit quietly very useful in life. So that starting each day, however quietly we can come, at least we approximate. Better to have a partially trained elephant than give up and just live with a totally untrained elephant. Right? Ability, very useful. To be able to sit quietly. And so that when we get up from a meditation cushion or a meditation bed, whether we're sitting or reclining, and we venture out into the world to meet the people we live with you know, and engage with them over breakfast or whatever it may be, or into the car, out into the workplace, the marketplace, and so forth. That we come from a place of stillness, which is then non-reactive, non-compulsive, non-obsessive. We come out with presence, attentiveness, 
a quiet, ready to be aroused into action when reality calls for it, and not simply be compulsively already in action when there was no need. So very useful. Very useful for our day-to-day living throughout the course of waking life. Very useful for getting good night's sleep. Extremely important to be able to be quiet and say, the day's over. Tell the mind, thank you. You've done your work. You can be quiet now. I want to sleep. And your, your mind says, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. <laughs> You go to sleep. But also to be able to have that ability, that cultivated and developed ability, which the Buddha said leads to an ambrosial dwelling, a sublime state, such that when we are forced by biology to sit quietly in our chambers, we don't go out kicking and screaming. We don't go out with anxiety, with fear, with desperation, with misery and anguish. We're dying. And we're about to sit quietly in our chambers, whether we like it or not. And we can be clawing and gnashing and scratching, trying to hold on to what has gone by, pretty futile. Or we can accept this, this slippery slope into stillness and go there consciously. Luminously, knowingly. And be ready for the next excursion, whatever that may be. So, we still have a day to practice, yeah? Practice everything now, though. It's no longer a day of silence, but it is a day of practice. So, when we have opportunity for silence, leap into the cool, still waters of shamatha when it's time to be active play in the wonderful waves of the four immeasurables. Good. Enjoy your day.